Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Perhatian, Perhatian, which is, of course, Indonesian for Achtung Achtung, I think. Is it? Yeah, is it? well, it says that here. I don't know if I've pronounced it right. And um, Sounded in good. my customary haste, Jim, I didn't go to Google and get, get the actual, you know, get someone, a recording of someone so I could get it right. Anyway, 80 years ago, this very day, one of those remarkable small stories of the Second World War took place. A group of freed German prisoners proclaimed the Free Republic of Nias, an Indonesian island. Ernst Leo Fischer became the first Prime Minister. He appointed Albert Wering as the Foreign Minister. A month later, Japanese troops occupied the island and the Republic was no more. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and my recently repatriated co-host, James Holland. Back from, <laughs> back from Italy, Jim. Yeah, yeah, no, it was it was fantastic. I mean, that story. So, so the the, the, the I can't remember what, what I've said about it, but the the, the story. It, well, it's called Endgame, um, but it's but <laughs> but it's basically about the rivalry at the end of the war yeah. between yeah. Ernst Kaltenbrunner and Karl Wolf, who were the two most senior SS generals yeah. under Himmler. So Himmler's yeah. at the top, and then Wolf and and Kaltenbrunner are sort of equal top billing. Yeah, um, and basically they both absolutely hate each other's guts, um, and. Wolf has been chief of staff to Himmler for most of the war and yep. is then head of all all police forces and um, in Italy and is basically kind of one of the kind of top two cheeses in Italy by the end yep. of the war. Kaltenbrunner yep. takes over from Heydrich as, as the commander of the RSHA, you know, the right security office. Yeah. So the SD, Gestapo, all that kind of stuff. And the Kripo um, after Heydrich gets killed in the summer of 1942. Yep. And... Basically, they hate each other's guts with an absolute passion. And both of them are trying to do kind of put out peace feelers so that they can save their necks. Yeah, at the end that's of the, the only reason they're interested in peace, isn't it? Is it completely self-preservation? I think so. I think with Wolf, there is a kind of disenchantment as a sort of realisation that, 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 that the Nazi state has failed. And he, mean, you know, he's, been... he's not in that kind of sort of innocent... It's not because he's doesn't believe in it anymore. It's more that he just thinks it's a busted flush. Well, that's it. I mean, it's easy to be disillusioned in the Nazi state by the spring of 1945, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yes, I mean, it it's, is. It's, it's, no great, it's no great leap uh, of imagination required, is it? Or, no, Or it sudden, ideo- sudden ideological awakening, road to Damascus. No. Oh, oh, you know, maybe Nazism ain't that cool. I mean, it's... No, uh, uh... no, 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 no. no that's, that's very true. But, but, but the thing about it is, it, so, so both of them are trying to kind of sort of, you know, nestle in there with peace negotiations. Yeah. To save their necks, but but each knows that the other is also doing that, so is so is trying to undermine that effort. Yep. And you know, only one person can win, and, <laughs> and it's <laughs> and so so anyway, so so to cut a long story short, Wolf Wolf comes out on top, right? But there's all sorts of amazing twists and turns, and and and, and overall, it involves the prominent and these hundred thirty nine hostages that Kaltenbrunner has. It involves just money laundering on a gargantuan scale yeah. it involves art theft it involves everyone lying um <laughs> and it involves lots and lots of mountains which yeah. was why i was in after all and it's i mean you know it's as a backdrop for making a documentary feature-length film um you can't really ask for more so we had no. you know we were sort of hurtling over frozen lakes and all sorts of stuff that's and, the sort of gig uh, where the cameraman basically starts to sort of purr 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, they're because yeah. they're thinking, oh, if I put a if I put a nice lens on this, this this will look absolutely insane yeah. on screen. Um, I remember uh, 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 a yeah, long time ago working with you know w- when I did my German culture documentary about ten years ago, we went we went in it in early February and it had snowed, and the director's going, oh no, you know everything's going to look the same, and the cameraman's no, everything's going to look brilliant. <laughs> I can I can <laughs> big blue sky, the snow, you know the yeah. German countryside. Don't worry, everything's going to look fantastic. So we had well, so I mean yeah. you'll have you'll have had that, won't you? I mean, it, it, you, yeah. I mean, I've got to say I was purring too. I mean, I just <laughs> you know, I was very very happy being being in the mountains. Uh, and and you go to this extraordinary place called San Leonardo, which is um, kind of sort of north of yeah. of Murano, at sort of end of a valley. There's a sort of mountain pass that sort of climbs out at the end of this valley. And in the in the old police station there in the cells was where they dis- where the Americans discovered Cranach's Adam and Eve, which. You know, under Wolf's watch had been oh, taken out of Uffizi for for safekeeping. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the most extraordinary place. I mean, it really was was stunningly beautiful. So, um, so that was all, all good. I fun. mean, the thing is, um, the thing is, is I mean, you know, uh, just just strikes me. You're talking about this, the, the sort of leeway for sheer villainy within the Nazi state. You know, yeah. the, 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 if you're if you're a villain, I mean, it's like it's like. Uh, all your Christmases come at once, isn't it? It's the most extraordinary yeah. thing. If what you want to do is steal art from the Uffizi and stick it up in your living room, you you mm. you can. It's yeah, it, pretty much. I mean, the, 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 I mean, because obviously there's this idea that I mean, it, it's you know, parsing apart the ideology and the idea that there's a sort of national quest and a sort of national mission in the in Nazism. But yeah, we, that, that's obviously present and that's a thing that get they talk about a lot and that's the thing that seems to motivate Hitler. But but also if what you want to do is nick stuff and <laughs> and uh, club of the people you don't like you yeah. you 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 know it, it it's it's a it's an interesting contrast isn't it or not contrast yeah. or co- combination that you know that, that because the sort of ideological end of its of itself regards itself as noble doesn't it as regard itself as a sort of higher cause and all that but actually if you're a gangster fill your boots it's 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 sort of an extraordinary combo isn't it and because because we don't talk about corruption in you know the, the, the soviet state is totalitarian and in its way but we don't seem to talk about that kind of villainy and corruption. There are bad people, obviously, within the Soviet system. Like, you know, Beria, for instance, is a good example of someone who's completely malevolently exploiting his position. But it doesn't sound like what he's doing. It doesn't, it doesn't, not, it's not in that sort of villainy um, bracket, is it? Yeah, no, no I, I know. And it, Do you know what I mean? But weirdly, paradoxically, it's because they think they're on a higher plane that this is all sort of, they, they kind of justify it because, yeah. you know, they're the master race and, yeah. it's, you know, the, the Aryans should rule the world and therefore they should also be the custodians of, of great art and everything. I mean, the, the, the Italian art is slightly different in, in that, you know, this is not being half-inched off, you know, it's not being stolen off Jews to go in the Führer no, no. Museum in Linz. No, it's just... This is taken out of Florence with the Italians' understanding that this is going to be protected in case of bomb damage and all the rest of it. But at the end of the war, Himmler yeah. tells Wolf to send it to the salt mines at Altazay yeah. to join the rest of it. Yeah. And and Wolf is thinking, 
No, no, no. You know, I can't do this. This is part of my bargaining chip. You know, I'm not going to send it to you. So he thinks, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know, I have to keep hold of this. So he's yeah. got it in this prison cell, in stored in this prison cell in San Leonardo. He's also got it in some, um, it's called Campo something or other. Yeah. Um, uh, some some schloss in the kind of high Tyrolean um, Alps, but on the Italian side of things. Although, yeah. obviously, yeah. that part of Italy has been morphed into the Reich for the duration of the war. Yeah. yeah. So it's no longer officially Italian territory. And and he's thinking, no, I need to keep my ta- my hands yeah. on this. Yeah, so yeah. he just says, I, I'd love to send it to the salt mines about to say... Um, um, uh, um, Himmler, but I can't do that can't because do that right you know, you know, we, I can't justify the use of fuel or trains. <laughs> you know, there's lots of bomb damage and stuff. That oh, trust me, I'll get them there just as soon as I can. But just for the moment, at least they're safe and we can use them. And one day they'll, you know, they'll line the walls of the Führer Museum. And Himmler <laughs> goes, "Oh, all right, then fine." And, and you know, <laughs> and that's the end of the matter. But consequently, they are in this. You know, they are in this prison cell and everything. I mean, it is just amazing. And the Prominentum is just extraordinary, this kind of sort of almost shootout between the Wehrmacht and the SS troops, which is signed off, incidentally, in favour of the Wehrmacht by Wolf. Right. Because the SS troops are Kaltenbrunner's SS troops. Right, of course. You know, so it's extraordinary. And you have this, you know, you have this extraordinary situation that in the Hotel Backman... Uh, in Niederdorf, because they're supposed to be going to this this hotel um, resort on the edge of this high Tyrolean lake yeah. called the Bragzer Z. Yeah. Um, but when they get there, they found that the Luftwaffe have just moved in. You, right. know, you might ask yourself quite reasonably, what Luftwaffe by <laughs> by by late April nineteen forty five? But anyway, they're in there, so, so they're they're holed up in these various hotels in this sort of you know mountain tourist village called Niederdorf, mm. where there is this. You know, and you've got this situation that in the Hotel Backman, um, General Falkenhausen, uh, General George Thomas, you know, non-friend of the show. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and um, Sigismund Payne Best, who was one of the two agents captured at the Venlo incident by yes, the Gestapo. Yes, right, right at the start. <laughs> in yeah. November 1939, are all roomies. Oh, incredible. <laughs> They're sharing a room together. I mean... How weird is that? So the whole thing—I mean, literally, you couldn't make it up. And then you've got you—you you, know—you've got Friedrich Schwent, who is, who is, um, uh, Kaltenbrunner's man at the Schloss Labers just outside yeah. Murano yeah. in the South Tyrol. You know, doing all his money laundering racket. I mean, it's just <laughs> so bizarre. I mean, you—you you literally couldn't make it up. You don't need to make it up yeah. because the drama and yeah, 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 yeah. the whole thing is so. But but also, it's just—it just undermines, which is what you're sort of alluding to, is the total absurdity of the Third Reich. You yeah. know, had it not been so kind of awfully malicious and terrible for for the world um you, you know it, it it sort of it's part of what i've always said which is that it's a it's a they're living in la la land yeah. it's, a, it's a total fantasy world yeah. which they're sort of making up all uh, all along and all the time and it, yeah. and it's just completely bonkers yeah, yeah but yeah. anyway but 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 I, I got back on friday and i've i've been, been reading your book which i've i've got to say I've, i think it's just Really, really outstandingly good. Oh, thanks, James. It's really good. It's it's yeah. proper grown up history book with properly researched, properly thought through, and you're saying really, really interesting and new things. Oh. And I think when it comes to Second World War, it's incredibly rare to find. I think think you know popular um, narrative fiction, popular kind of commercial non fiction, where where people are saying something new. Um, yeah. And you absolutely do. You've really got me thinking about all sorts of things, about oh, thanks, Bradley Jim. and Patton and Monty and stuff. And all the stuff about Monty and the VD is really is really 
brilliant uh, really really well, brilliant. you know funnily enough but because uh, uh, because we talked about that on the live cast um uh, uh, which if you're uh, 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 a patreon member you know about but if you don't um we do a live cast every other monday where james and i sort of talk in this manner and take questions and and last monday we were going to t- talk to peter caddick adams and he couldn't come on so we ended up basically having to talk about vd talking about vd <laughs> but, but um i spoke to the, uh, the the colonel watched last week and he he told me about what it was like being the duty officer in the 50s Mm. Um, as a national serviceman, and what you would do is there were brothels that were um, uh, that, that that you turned because so basically what we talked about last week was the was the fact that VD in the First World War b- was a massive problem for the British Army, and in the end it became a, like a moral panic, British society problem um, with all sorts of things into the mix. But basically the numbers are. The numbers, are, I think the numbers are amazing because the First World War is synonymous with trench foot. That's the thing they teach you about at. When you do, when you do, I don't know, key stage stage four history, First World War, and they take you to Flanders with your school trip, it's trench foot is the terrible thing about the First World War. 74,000 men hospitalized with trench foot in the First World War. The the First World War is synonymous with trench foot, but more than 400,000 men hospitalized with venereal disease. Anyway, it's just amazing. So, so, so it's the elephant in the room when the, when the army get going again in France in 1939, the BEF go back to France in 1939 for all the people who were officers, particularly staff officers like Montgomery, who was not only a subaltern, but then a staff officer in the first world war. VD is really forward. It is very much on your forefront. It's very much on your planning, but the colonel say, so what happens? What what used to happen in the fifties? Well, particularly when you're static, that's the point. Well, and you've got nothing to do and everyone's bored shitless. And uh, and it's an absolute direct to morale. Um, yeah, indica- you know, you're indica- sitting there, you're sitting there digging trenches and stuff, and, yeah. and and fanning around, freezing your nuts off. Well, and so you think, okay, weekend, I'll go to go to Lille. And you can't train properly because you haven't got the kit because the kit hasn't arrived yet because the procure- right. procurement isn't lined up. The army's massively expanded, is is lit, you know absorbing all those territorial battalions. So it's new people coming to soldiering. It's lit, it's got listlessness if the if their officers aren't up to scratch. You know because yep. the army hasn't shaken itself through at this point. But 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 yes. So it's the, but but the, the colonel was saying what you used to do in the fifties is um, and obviously product. This is all a pr- national service product of having conscripts. Is that there were brothels you could go to. You would sign in. You would sign a book saying that's where you were going. And when you got back, you had to wash yourself with I don't know iodine or something, and and carbolic, <laughs> carbolic. And if you were going, you were issued with condoms. You you and and, and dad dad said um, you know to to some sort of young public school uh, subaltern coming into the system. This was all rather hair raising when your men would come back and go, oh, you know, they'd boast about what they'd got up to and all this sort of stuff. It's all a bit of a shock. So, yeah. so, so, you know, all those things. I think that's what's really interesting is all those things in the mix, all those sort of, you know, because after all, in the First World War, you've got, you've got people who don't want the army to issue the army never issue condoms in the First World War, even though that's obviously the sensible thing to do. Because there's such panic around it, and you've got the sort of moralistic people who say, "Well, if you issue condoms, they're only going to have sex," and it's kind of like, "Well, yeah, yeah, that's why we want to issue them." And if you, and then you, the other end of people going, "If you don't, it's going to cause VD." Um, and you know, I mean, it's just the sort of mix of it all. And and the thing is, this is, you know, an army with conscription as a social experiment. I think is a very interesting subject. That you yeah. that suddenly suddenly you know the ruling classes are faced with the actual morals and habits of the people they rule rather than their idealized rules and habits 
And that's what you get in the First World War and that's what you get in the Second World War. And I think, again, that's another reason the war is so interesting is because you have the, you know, cheek by jowl, the ruling classes and the middle classes, the bourgeois, having to deal with the working classes and vice versa in a way that otherwise normally they wouldn't have to. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and that 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 comes through also very, very strongly with the with your last chapter, which I thought was just stunning, or the one on on Peter White. But yeah. I should just explain. For, yeah, for, so, so the book is called Command, and what you've done is you've taken a commander from differing ranks um, and different backgrounds and talked about them and their backgrounds and their motivations, but but also kind of tended to kind of sort of focus on certain aspects of that you know yeah. it's not like each one you know the bradley chapter is a is a potted history a biography of, of bradley it's 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 much more cleverly done than that and you're you're saying different and interesting points on each but also going off on sort of rabbit holes down yeah. rabbit holes and, and in the and, style of this uh, podcast uh, yeah. <laughs> in, yeah in the side of this podcast but the but i've i was really really struck by the by the peter white one so peter white one is uh, peter white is the is the author of with the jocks about the yeah. 52nd lowland division you know who come kind of, sort of quite late to the party yeah. in terms of frontline line troops yeah. and it's really made, and i thought it was, i thought it was just really really fantastically written it it was really thought provoking really good and you could really tell that you you were really moved by his experience yeah and it made me sort of stop and think about the loss of the infantryman and yes. just how how bad it was and and how you know you're sort of the, the infantryman in the second world war is 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 the person that we're most familiar with because of yep. landing jumping out of landing craft because of omar beach because yep. of sort of you know commando comics and all the rest of it and movies but actually it, the infantryman is the sort of bottom of the pile and, and and i was reflecting about it and i was and i was thinking with the exception of the japanese i yep. reckon the kind of rates of attrition within an infantry battalion were more or less yeah. the same wherever you were. Yeah. With Japanese accepted, where basically everyone died. Yeah. You know, you've got, you know, how many, you know, the difference with the Eastern Front is you've got so many more infantry divisions yeah. than you have, say, yeah. for and say, the British Army. Yeah. But in a battalion, your rate of attrition for six months of fighting is probably 100%. You see, this is the thing I think... That's, An excess of 100%, But I think I this say. is the thing that's really interesting, Jim, because you said that at the start there that, you know, the rifleman is the person we're most familiar with. As, or is it sort of, he's our ideal of a, 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 a... You know, that's what pops into your head when you think of a soldier in the Second World War. You know, the, the, with his with his SMLE and his putties and his and his khaki drab and his, and his um, you know, medieval helmet. And, um, and I, I sort of... I think yet we don't know about him at all. We don't. We really do not no. know about the infantryman's experience at all. And I think, I, I mean, because the thing I keep, I keep coming back to, and, and again, a, a, a little bit watching the, some of the stuff of the war in Ukraine is first yeah. of all, you're living in the open all the time. You 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 are living in a you know at, at best if you're in, you know if you're if if you're at the front you're you're living in a in a hole you've dug that's full of rainwater that um you, you know that maybe you maybe if you're fortunate and things are quiet you don't have to go to the toilet in that hole you're eating food that's probably cold because lighting a burner will give off smoke and give away your position and one of the things peter white goes on and on about in the book is that whenever they inherit positions from another battalion if the other lot have been been 
good in their field discipline and made sure they don't light their burners and don't light fires in the trenches, then the Germans don't know where they are. And so you inherit a position that's inherently safer. Whereas if the other lot have been slack, you inherit somewhere that's that's been keyed into mortar ranging and and you know you're going to get shelled and shot at. And just just so the business of living, before you even before you fix bayonets, before you put one up the spout, before you go over a cross line, uh, start line rather, the business of living in the open all the time is absolutely, um, you know, t- plainly totally exhausting, d- d- demeaning, um, uh, yep. uh, and potentially the thing that would break your morale long before anyone shot at you. Well, I was struck with this by by talking to the Monty's Men guys yeah. at, at We Have Waste Fest last September because. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, Monty's men are very, very, very serious about their living history. Yeah. So you can only get in if you're good, you're properly trained, you're thin, um, and all those sort of things. I mean, you know, you have to be the right age, you have to be the right look. Yeah. The sort of I, I don't know whether there's kind of sort of public examinations exactly, but but it's kind of not far off it. Yeah. So and when they and they don't really perform in public, what they mainly do is they do it for themselves out of interest, and yeah. they go in a field, and they basically don't go obviously go fighting Germans, but yeah. what they do do is they live like them and learn the drills yeah. absolutely to the letter and do exercises. So basically, it's, a, it's like a Second World War training operation. Yeah. So imagine yourself a, a training a training company. That's what they're like. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of a weekend, they're all absolutely knackered. And these are kind of sort of, you know, 25-year-old blokes. Yeah. Because they've been living in a hole. They've been yeah living out in the open. They've been living off Second World War rations. They've been... Doing it exactly, you know what they well, can I mean, and can't do in the Second World War. Well, well, I mean, after all, if you're that's two days. If you're, but if you're trying to keep yourself warm, if your body is trying to keep itself warm because you're living out in the cold, you're tearing through calories in a way that, that you, you 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 don't if you live in a nice double glazed, centrally heated house like, like like I do. So, and yet the food is, you know, the the the, the food is the food is arguably fine, and certainly. Ration scales in Allied armies are much, much better than they are in um, uh, in, in the enemy armies and all that. We have to remember that and bear that in mind when, when talking about this and drawing these comparisons. But basically, you know, what it does to your body to produce the heat needed means that whatever food you get is incredibly important and obviously can, never touches the sides. So so you're in this you're in this already before you before the before we have the fear of moaning minis and. Uh, MG42s or whatever. You're in the you're in that physical loop that is predicated on exhaustion, aren't you? I mean, uh, which is the, yep. the thing I find for a start. Um, you, you really need to th- you really need to think about and get your head around. And obviously, we've talked about armored um, soldiers a lot on the podcast, and I and I do think they have it that tiny bit easier because they're at least they can if they want they can sleep in the tank out of the rain and out of the cold although obviously tanks get very very hot and they get very very cold and and they're, they're disagreeable environments too but they're not it's not they're not sleeping in ditches and you know uh and I've they've got, got a cover over their head if yeah they exactly it. and when you look at that wind that winter campaign that peter white fights you know because he does all the he you're right they're late fifth uh, 52nd lowland are late to the party and and they've been they've had this incredibly checkered career so they're they're 52nd 52nd lowland a part of um uh you know the the the, the abortive attempt to land men at cherbourg and reinfluence things in 1940 and uh and they're withdrawn uh, out through cherbourg again you know they go in they, they're there for sort of four or five days and they 
and they bugger off. Then that's about it. And then they're re then they're repurposed as um as uh, mountain troops. And the idea is that you know for Norway or whatever. And then they're actually part of Fortitude North. And their de- their deployment and their training is fed into the deception campaign. The idea that that the British are going to go to go to Norway. So they're this very peculiar outfit who are sort of in the, you know at one point their value is as a deception rather than as a serious part of a reserve, which which must be incredibly dispiriting. Those sort of troops who are in a reserve and who are going to be used as some sort of fire brigade. Also, they, they have terrible problems with discipline and all that sort of thing because the men are bored. The men are bored. They aren't in theatre. They aren't in campaign. They haven't got stuff to do. So there's all that going on with them. And then, and then of course, they're, they're, then they're the airborne, they're the air landing reserve for uh, Market Garden. And that doesn't happen. And at one point, they do get their orders to to learn how to do manifests on gliders, and then and then are stood down. Which is amazing that there's this sudden flurry in their battle diaries of like, oh Christ, we've got to figure out how to load a horse. I mean, how how do we do that? You know. Um, and then of course, and then they then they go in in Walcheren in the in the Walcheren uh, offensive in October. In October, so they start the war long after those. You know, so it's so it's it's short days, long nights. It's bad weather from the from the off. You know that yep. you know, and, and obviously one of the trials in Normandy is the fact that the days are really really long. So you 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 get up early, you go to bed late. You know, a dawn attack will be, will be going in at half past four in the morning or whatever, and you've wound down at midnight. There's all that going on, but 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 at least the weather isn't as a isn't isn't sort of as afflictive as it is for the men fighting that winter. And those those stories, you know, I've talked about sleeping in the open, fighting in the open in January, late January, early February in, in Holland and on the and on the um, German border. Where well, the ground's frozen. So it's the, just, the, it's just, you know, mortars are just you know, five what, times as bad as they would normally exactly. be. Exactly. And, and, and you're completely up against, you're up against the weather you know, you're shivering. Hard to dig in. Hard to dig in. You're shivering the whole time. So again, that sort of calorific um, expenditure that's going on. I mean, I, I, I um, I, I think, I think we don't know about the infantryman. We think we do. We think we've got a picture of him, but I don't think we've. I, I, I re- and more and more, I think about it. The more I think, we've no idea what that was like and how oppressive it was. Well, I, you I, just, but you have to think. You know, you, it's. Again, I think people are just so sort of seduced by numbers, aren't they? Yeah. Statistics and, yeah. and, you, and and all these things need context. That's, yeah. the, that's the issue. Yeah. yeah, we just need to take a very very quick break. We'll be back in a second. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. 
It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. James and I are talking infantry. Think about it not in terms of bullets and mortars. Think of it in terms of conditions. And think about, you know, I sort of think about how I had a kind of, you know, postponed three times 50th birthday weekend this weekend yeah. in, in, in the Isle of Wight. And, you know, I only got five hours sleep and I was a bit, I was hanging a bit yesterday morning. Yeah. And I spent the whole day just feeling completely dreadful. Yeah. Well, Matt, you know, that's sort of lack of sleep and alcohol, obviously. But, yeah. but just, you know, times that by 10, Yeah. you know, in terms of sleep, 10 days worth of kind of not enough sleep yeah. before you have any chance and, and sometimes quite often longer than that. Yeah. So that constantly feeling fatigued, constantly feeling just a bit hungry. Yeah. Freezing your nuts off. Yeah. Um, as you say. And then just how you handle the fear and the danger and the, and the kind of brutality of it. Yeah. And... and you know, people might be thinking, oh, no, you know, compared to kind of Eastern Front, it was nothing like as bad. Or, you know, the Japanese army on those islands, you know, like Peleliu, where 64 walk out of alive at yeah. the end after 14,000 are dead or whatever. I think, I think the Japanese are, uh, and the Chinese are kind of possibly the only exceptions. But I think everyone else, I mean, you know, you think about the fourth, US 4th Infantry Division, which lands with 45 casualties or whatever, 45 deaths on D-Day. Yeah but has lost 100% of its fighting effectiveness in two weeks yeah. of the Cotentin Peninsula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You think about the 85th, US 85th Division in the Apennines, yeah. which after two weeks has lost 9,500 men to casualties. Yeah. You know, which is, you know, in a 16,000-strong infantry division, is basically its fighting yeah, that fighting element. That's yeah. gone just yeah. in two weeks. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I remember that of all the people that I interviewed for my book about Italy all those years ago, I think out of maybe 35 frontline soldiers that I interviewed, one had not been wounded. God. But the thing is... He was the only one who the, got through unscathed. But, but, but then the, the, and obviously witnessed gargantuan amounts of, of destruction and death and mayhem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, is the thing is, uh, and the, uh, I mean, I think the other thing, the other thing that Peter White does talk about and sort of, uh, uh, it, and I think is another thing that doesn't get talked about very often with in this um, arena is fear. And I think... Yeah. We, we, yeah, you know, absolutely. The, the I mean, I'd just be absolutely well, shitting myself. Well, you know, because the Americans, the Americans did, um, you know, they surveyed their troops a lot. And there's, there's this thing, there's a thing from the, um, from the Pacific where they did, 
with this instance of fear symptoms reported by U.S. soldiers, right? Because the thing is, is you're, you're absolutely right. On the East, we think of the Eastern Front as, you know, the numbers being bigger, so the fatalities being worse, blah, blah, blah. But the fear, wherever it was occurring in the world, the experience of fear, your experience... is pretty constant. I, I would imagine is, is constant. That You know, being shelled, being shelled, being shot at, being machine gunned, being mortared, the fit, surely the fear is the universal, right, in all this. So the Americans... In Division A, South Pacific, they surveyed 2,095 men. Violent pounding of the heart, 84%. Sinking feeling in the stomach, 69%. Shaking or trembling all over, 61%. And this is, this is you know, um, fear symptoms people are prepared to admit to, right? Um, uh, cold sweat, 56%. Feeling weak or faint, 49%. Feeling stiff. 45%, vomiting, 27%, losing control of bowels, 21%, urinating in pants, 10%. The, 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 this is the thing, again, we don't we don't really talk about very much. And obviously the British have developed, the British developed a sort of, um, you know, rather not talk about it, old chap, stiff upper lip, hmm. way of way of facing. We want to make a fuss. Exactly. But, but, but uh, uh, and obviously you can't make windows into, into, men's souls and all that but this is this is the thing that we that these people were experiencing on a daily basis this kind of fear and yep. what that must do to you especially as you're exhausted as well and you know the, the, the... yes i mean a lot of people have talked to me about about the about the tank the bank yep. of the bank of courage yeah yep. and that 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 everyone's bank a bit like your your body metabolism everyone's yeah. metabolism, metabolism is different and everyone's bank of courage is different yeah. but it's still there yeah. and there's a point where it kind of runs out yeah. you know um john semkin said that after Guylenkirk and you know he was he was washed out he yeah. just couldn't do any more yeah. his tank had run dry and you can replenish that tank to a certain extent but you'll never get it it's, it's like a sort of a rechargeable battery it'll never go yeah. back to kind of how it was when it first came yeah. when it first came out of the packet yeah and and I remember talking to this, this wonderful guy who was in the 3rd Coldstream Battalion. He was a local sort of, you know, farmer's son and country boy. Yeah. Lived near where I live. And, and he'd been in the 3rd Coldstreams. And I remember him talking about it. They were, it, was north of, it was north of Florence. No, south of Florence. It was in the Chianti Hills. It was north of Trasimeno. Yeah. And they were moving forward. And he said how it worked was that, you know, Companies and platoons would take it in turns to lead off on an attack. Yep. And it was this not young 19-year-old platoon sergeant's turn. And he'd noticed that that he was struggling in the days leading up to, you know, in beforehand, yep. that he was snap, extra snappy and difficult yep. and, you know, argumentative and pet up. And anyway, the night before the attack, you know, it was one of those sort of dawn attacks that they do in the, early in the morning. This guy was in a complete state. Yeah. And my guy said to him, look, just go to the back of the line, go and see the MO and get out of it. And he was like, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't let the men know that there's anything wrong with me. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Just stop going on about yeah. it and all the rest of it. Anyway, they did this big attack, came under fire, got completely pinned down. And everyone was looking at the, in the platoon, was looking at the platoon sergeant to do something. Yeah. And he was absolutely shot. So he just stood up and charged and got mowed down and was killed. Right. And my friend said to me, he said, the problem was his fear, although he, he's, he shot his bolt, 
his fear of letting down his mates and letting down yeah. the side and of humiliating himself yeah. was actually greater than the fear of death. Yeah. But both fears were very, very real. Yeah. I mean, there's this really interesting quote from uh, um, uh, 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 John Ellis's Sharp End. There's a really good chapter on this. Um, and he quotes this guy called Jack Belden who says, I am afraid to a greater or lesser degree in every battle. I cannot exactly say that I've overcome my fear, but rather that my fear has not yet overcome me. Mm. Which I think is a, that's a fascinating way of looking at it. Isn't it? Never, never yet overcome me. I cannot recall any moment on the battlefield where I was completely panic-stricken and lost my presence of mind. I've had sh flashes of sheer terror when I heard and saw a bomb hurtling towards me. And I had one second of paralyzing fear when I was wounded, but I've never lost the capacity for thinking and coming to a decision. But... Yep. But he's thought. But he's thought about it, and it, and I think this is the, I think that that that, I mean the, the what I mean to go back to, to go back to Peter White. What's so interesting with him is he is is he he doesn't varnish any aspect of being an infantryman in that in that last bit of the Second World War. No, and we've talked about this a lot. You know the um the sort of you know the 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 the, the broad brush newspaper account of of the Second World War. In, in the West is D-Day, Arnhem, oh, victory in May 1945. Right? There's a, yeah, yeah, there's a yeah. maybe the Battle of the Bulge, if you're lucky, um, but a, like an Anglo-centric point of view, that's what you get. But if you're fighting, if you're fighting in those veritable battles, those battles in the, in the depths of winter, where, um, you know, because I mean, I, I, I've been looking at. I, I mean, the, 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 I've got one more chapter to write, and I've been looking at you know, um, uh, armored armored warfare theory and all that sort of stuff, and the, the you know, Swanning. You're doing Hobart. I'm doing Percy Hobart, who I think, who I think, I think. Um, I mean, I, I the, the, what I think about him and 79th Armored Division is that you know that is that's actually the greatest the greatest tank theoretician and commander of the Second World War. Is, is Percy Hobart, even though he never commands actually in the classical sense. The Guderian, Guderian has got nothing on Percy Hobart because Percy Hobart invents the perfect um, assault force, armoured assault force, infantry, infantry support armoured assault force of the Second World War, which never fights as, as, a, as a division, which is because it's so brilliantly integrated, it doesn't, that's not what it does. <laughs> and that if armored in, armored integra if integration is the key to successful use of armor, then what you have is an armored division that doesn't fight as a division, that's um, sent to where it needs to go. And that the crocodile, Churchill crocodile, is the ultimate infantry tank. It's the perfect infantry support weapon. That, that no there's nothing. I, I, it's, it's, it's the most ferocious armored fighting vehicle of the war. Absolutely. Bar none. Absolutely. Bar none. And, and if, if the job and, and try is... Talking, try talking to a German veteran about... about uh, and then talk to a British veteran about a tiger. Well, but, and compare but, the rea reactions. But if, but if the job of the t of the armour is to integrate and protect the infantry, then what what is... The, the crocodile is the, is the perfect expression of that. And you yeah. get that in White's account of the fighting. The fighting yes. in, in, in the winter of, of uh, early 1945. Because you, funny enough, you do in the American accounts of yeah. Geilenkirk and the, the infantryman's attack, they talk less about the Sherwood Rangers than they do about the the, yeah. the uh, crocodiles that were yeah. accompanying because, them at Geilenkirk. Because, the, because after all, the tank, you know, if you look at what the tank, where the tank comes from in the First World War, its job is as, it's an assault weapon and the idea is it pops open the enemy and, and supports the infantry and that, that that's what it's for. And that the sort of, the, the glorious sort of swans of early, of, you know, May 1940, when the Germans break out and swan about 
and there's sort of nothing for them to fight. Um, is that really armor's role? No, it, no. That that's the fruits of the fruits of successful armored warfare, rather than its actual job. Well, and, and of course, and of course, the, um, the you know the moments of breakthrough for the Germans are are an all arms yes. operation. Exactly, exactly. So, so I'm so this is what I'm writing about. Why I'm writing about Hobart, but but the but the but the thing is, is because Veritable and and Blackcock and all those battles are essentially assault battles where you've German lines that you've got to break open. And then you move on to the next German line you've got to break open. It's sort of like high-speed First World War combat. Just no one's yeah. got time to, to dig in quite in the way they had in the First World War. You've not quite reached that, st- you know, the, st- the chance for it to get static never quite arrives. And, I, I, and, and White is going through that. They go to start, you know, the, the, um, uh, uh, with the jocks is a story of start line after start line after start line. Company taking... You know, the, the O group is always about who goes first. Every single O group he goes to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, yeah, is yeah. his boss, Smig, going, I'm sorry, Peter, your chap's going to have to go first. Or don't, wor- don't worry, Peter, it's not your turn this time. And that is, the, that is, that is it. And that's the life of the platoon commander. Because I think, you know, when I started writing this, this book, obviously I wanted to write about Montgomery, but not, not when he's Monty, when he's sort of, when he's sort of nascent. And and you know and his and his talent that the army hasn't quite brought itself to recognise yet. Quite. I mean, obviously he's he's had some lucky lucky escapes because he's got good patrons. But 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 I also want I wanted to write about what it's like being, you know, running a keeping a platoon going and going to yeah, those. It, 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 and it comes across incredibly well. And, and you you do this heartbreaking story. Is that you know they're going forward. They know the Germans are in this wood. I oh, know they're somewhere. They don't know quite where they are. And then at some point there's a there's a ridge, yeah. Which which, as you point out, on a normal day in peacetime would just be a lovely balmy walk in the lovely woods, yeah. But suddenly become a death zone because the moment you go on a ridge, you're silhouetted against yeah. it, and someone you know, has to see you. Someone has to go over it first, and someone has to take that leap of faith, and someone has to do it. And, yeah. and the first guy gets 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 shot in the head. Second one gets hit, hit in the stomach, and stomach wounds tended to be fatal, generally speaking, yeah. But not always, but usually, and um. He then get, get, gets over, and the guy with the what's he called Byers, I yeah. think, or something like that. He, he's got the he's wounded, and they need to go. Everything everything within him is saying, "Go and rescue Byers." Yeah, and he feels extra bad because he had to put him on a charge the night before That's for right. some for, minor for some lip. Into, yeah, 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 and. And he, but he also knows that if he goes and rescues him, he'll get killed or wounded himself. And that's actually then going to bring down the small unit cohesion even yeah. more. Yeah. Uh, and he just can't. And so he doesn't. And what happens, of course, is is what, what the British tend to do is as soon as they hit any kind of serious opposition, they go, OK, don't worry about this one. We're not going to lose lots of men now. Yeah. Pull back at night. We'll come in with the heavy artillery. Now we know where the enemy are. We'll zero in on them with the mortars and tanks yeah. and, and artillery, we'll, and then we'll move through the next day. Yeah. And they can't get to buyers. Yeah. And so they come across, across in the next day, and there he is, and he's died. And it's yeah. clear that he's not died immediately because he's thrown up. Yeah. Because, you know, and he's basically just sort of, his old intern sides have just gone to mush, and yeah. the life force has drained away from him. And, and it's very clear that for White... This is a moment that he returns to time and time again. Could he have done something different? Is yeah. there anything he could have done to save that guy's life? And the, the truth is clearly not. 
but but he's this guy has this awful, terrible, lonely death. Yeah, where he's on this wood. Yeah, throwing up, life force stripping away, and you would know that. And and it's it's one thing being blown to smithereens, you don't know anything about it. It's another yeah. thing having to reconcile the fact that you are dying and that yeah. is your fate in yeah. this lonely corner of a wood. Yeah. And, and and so many people faced this in the Second World War. Yeah. And and it's just, it, it's the infantry Mutland's lot is such, is a human tragedy and there is, there is sort of terrible classism going on because if you're smart and bright, you end up in the, in the Air Force or the yeah. Navy yeah. or a different, or the, or the engineers or the artillery or whatever. Yeah. And so there is this and sort of class discrimination. Oh, completely. Which at the same, whilst by the same time, it is also being equalised because you've got guys from, from lower strata becoming officers. Well, yes. Yeah, so, so, yes. Yeah, so the army undergoes this massive re- reform sort of, I mean, it, I mean, it, you know, it's the same. Cur- we're, and we're talking about the British, but I think this, yeah. this is across the board. Oh, it's this across the, the board. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. not just the British. You, you know, we're talking about your chapter and Peter White. But 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 read this for what we're saying for a kind yeah. of across the board. It's the same with the Americans. It's the same yeah. with the Germans. The German structure changes. You know, you're not middle class university boys by the end of the Second World War. Yeah. You're guys who proved yourself as an NCO beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. bumped up through the ranks yes i mean it's that sort of it's that the sort same of with the soviet e- egalitarian Union. opportunity um to to be killed as a subaltern being offered you know in the officer class it's the you know it's broadened out everyone can have the opportunity of being killed um, yeah <laughs> and, randomly and, and brutally and live and live with the horrendous responsibility of running a running a platoon or higher i mean the interesting thing about that about that and, and um it's it's our listener andy Aitchison who who told me to read with the jock so i have to i completely have to thank him for um for 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 this having written about this um well i did drop him a note about your chapter actually oh great oh thanks he was he was he was very very pumped i have to say great but but this this sort of obviously that but the the other obviously the the infantry end up with these people but, but arguably being being an infantryman is the sort of is the the one where you need the most the smartest people because the job is changing permanently it's ch- it's changing with every single piece of terrain and you need people who can who can read you know because fighting in a village is different to fighting in a field is different to fighting in a wood is different to fighting in a town is different you, you or, uh, to, to, to different to fighting somewhere that fighting that's somewhere that's flooded the the, the 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 sheer amount of stuff that you you know you need to be able to do to be a good infantry officer. You've got to be able to work with the armour. You've got to be able to work with your artillery. You've got to be able to work with your mortars, your support weapons. That actually, and and, and, and that counts not just for the officers, it's the NCOs, and in fact the riflemen, have all got to be savvy to all these things all at once. And yet, you're at the bottom of the food chain in terms of who you're being given, and you're treated as at the bottom of the food chain. I mean, it's all... It, it, it. And also, in terms of it's it, it's socially and regionally a complete mesh up as yep. well. Yeah. I mean, you know, because you've got the irony with the fifty second Lowland Division, the, the Lowland Division trained for mountain warfare, who then go into the Lowlands. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and actually, most of them aren't from the Lowlands anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's lots of they're mostly there's. <laughs> yeah, Peter White's from well, Surrey, isn't he? In South yeah. Africa. Well, he's from Surrey. The NCOs tend to be Cockneys, and the and the soldiers tend to be Scottish. And, yeah, uh, and and it, I, I, you know the books the books sort of got that that dated he goes you know the the wonderful wonderful way the Cockney can work with the Glaswegian is a truly heartening thing to watch Cockney yeah. exactly <laughs> wonderful chat with Cockney uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I mean I, I I think you're absolutely right I think that that 
the, the, the infantryman, after all, and, and we, you know, when we talked about Barbarossa the week before last, um, you know, you look at the distances that the Lancer are trying to cover on foot um, um, in the summer of 1941, where they're doing 45 kilometres a day marches. And they'll put in a march, at, you know, that kind of distance and then have to fight. Um, you know, they'll march up to somewhere, 45k up to somewhere and then have to assault it. And the, then the fighting will stop, and then they'll and then they'll be told, right, okay, next place, and they'll march another forty kilometers the next day. The sheer physical exertion of it, um, yeah, 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 yeah. belief really. Well, I, but 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 ultimately, for all the privations, for all the humiliations, for all the difficulties, and and all the rest of it, it is still the just the rate of attrition, which I think is yeah. just so completely brutal. Yeah, um, and, and you know, I, I can't stress this enough that you know, if you if you're in a if you're an infantry battalion of you know your 900 men, yeah, or pretty much all of whom are going to be frontline troops, apart from you, you just can't help but be, yeah, you know, un- unlike other units, you know, it's not like an armoured regiment where yeah. you know 45 percent of you are actually, or 48 percent of you are actually driving trucks and yeah. probably not putting yourself in that much danger. In an infantry battalion, pretty much everyone is in the front line, yeah. even even the clerks at, at battalion headquarters, because yeah. you're never far behind the front line. No. There are plenty of battalion commanders who buy it. Yeah. And, you know, statistically, you don't... Statistically, you do not have a chance of coming through unscathed. No. So, so you will know, very, in very quick order, that your chances of getting through, and whether you, whether you are blown to smithereens, whether you have a... Um, a stomach wound and a left for dead for and it, your life force sups away from you for over several hours or whether you get a nick or whether you lose a leg or whether you have something a little bit more debilitating and like an eye or a yeah. bullet through the jaw or whatever yeah. and survive is really just a matter of chance yeah you know it, and you would know that and it's just i just you know it's just hats off isn't it i yeah. mean it's just incredible yeah I really think there's a there's a case for doing a for doing a, you know I'm I'm supposed to be doing I'm doing casino obviously now and then I'm supposed to be doing Westwall which is the kind of the winter battles. Yeah. I think there's a case for doing an infantry battalion. Yeah. A bit like the Sherwood Rangers one but following an infantry battalion. I just think it'd be so interesting. You know, and grim but but so interesting. But if you picked, you know, if you picked a DLI battalion, they basically they go everywhere, they do everything. And the and that you know the, the people who start the book with won't will probably not be at the end of it will they is the thing yeah. is that the, the sheer mm. churn of the of it um and and as ever you know like you say the, the people who aren't injured are the other are are the outliers yeah um anyway i think that's probably all that that's i think i think there's a bit more to be said on infantry so i think yeah. we should maybe come back to that next week that's a good idea i think we should um, think we and should. think about another aspect of it yeah yeah okay well, that's all the war waffle we have in us for today. Um, join us on yeah. Thursday for a fascinating chat with Christopher Moran about Ian Fleming's Second World War. Which, oh, um, that was good. Really, really good. And um, our sort of cousin podcast, The Rest is History. Um, uh, they rather dissed him, didn't they? They rather dissed him. And I think if you if you heard Mr. Sambrook's outrageous slurs on Ian Fleming, um, this is the perfect antidote on Thursday. Um, we will see you soon. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Cheerio. Cheerio.